going to be reading this morning Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 11 and reading through verse 14. Be reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Let's listen to the inspired word of God. In him, meaning in Christ, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And here ends our reading from God's perfect word. As we continue our series, Good News from a Far Land, we've noticed that the Apostle Paul uh, uh, almost mirrors this, uh, this flood, this river of blessings uh, which has come forth from God from the, from the super heavenly places, so to speak. And the apostle mirrors that with this flood of his own uh, praise, a virtual river of praise for God's wise and powerful work of redemption of sinners. And we've uh, begun to notice now, we've begun to see this pattern that there is a very clear teaching uh, in here, even though the apostle doesn't use the word Trinity, you know, there are Christian cults around which insists that we who call ourselves Trinitarian have added something to the Bible. We're not adding anything at all. We're simply reading carefully and noticing that the work of redemption according to the Apostle Paul here, is a Trinitarian work. God the Father saves sinners. How does he save them? Well, he has elected or chosen a people from all eternity. He has given those people into the care of his Son to be redeemed um, by him. And the Father, uh, in concert with that, works all things out. There's nothing at all that has ever happened or ever will happen in history that God hasn't worked according to the counsel or the plan of his own will. God the Father saves sinners. God the Son saves sinners. The apostle reminds us that we are saved, we are redeemed through his blood. That the eternal son of God accepted the father's charge, freely became incarnate, freely lived a sinless life for us, and freely died on Calvary's cross, bearing our sins and redeeming or purchasing us back from the just punishment that awaited us. The question has to arise uh, to any thoughtful person. Okay, well, if God the Father did something, when? Well, in eternity past, and God the Son did something about 2,000 years ago. He took a human nature and died for his people. And yet, 
I'm living right now. And how does all of this actually make a difference for me or make a difference in me? So we're turning today then as the Apostle Paul, not in a kind of a crude outline, but an organic growing outline, has moved from the work of the Father into the work of the Son and now is moving us into this uh, last uh, great part of the work of redemption, namely the work of the Holy Spirit in the redemption of sinners. I want you to notice that the Holy Spirit is, according to Paul, first of all, the great inspirer of Scripture. Look at verse 13 again. In him, in Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. How does this get to me? It gets to me through the word of truth, through the gospel of our salvation. The Holy Spirit is the great inspirer of the word of God, the great inspirer of the scriptures. The apostle here refers to the scriptures as, verse 13, the word of truth, the gospel or the good news of your salvation. He'd already hinted at this. If you have your Bibles open, if you glance back to verse 9, Paul had already hinted at this idea where he talks about uh, that which is, uh, was made known to us, namely the mystery of God's will, the mystery of his plan, the plan of salvation. What is the mystery? The Apostle Paul likes to talk about mystery. We have a tendency to think of uh, mystery as some mysterious thing that you really can't and never would understand. But that's not at all what the apostle means. When he says the mystery of God's will, he means that plan of salvation which was hidden from unaided okay, uh, human intellect. Man, apart from God's help, could never have figured out God's plan of salvation. It is a mystery from all eternity which God has made known to us. In other words, the apostle is talking about the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. The mystery of God is, uh, is the, the truth of God made known to us and revealed to us, so to speak, and which we find in the Bible, the very word of God. That's our connection. Okay? You don't need the Bible. You don't need a missionary. You don't need a preacher to know there is a God. You don't need the Bible to know that God is good. There's too much goodness in this world. You don't need the Bible to know that God is angry. If it's a good world, yet we all die. There's something wrong. You don't need the Bible for that. You don't need the Bible to know what's right and what's wrong. God has written his, his law on the heart of every person. But what you can't discover on your own is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you can't discover. And therefore, they need a preacher. 
The gospel must be preached throughout the world because men can't come up with that. That's not a mysterious statement. You can't know about George Washington unless somebody tells you about George Washington. Nothing mysterious about that, right? And you can't know about Jesus Christ unless somebody tells you about Jesus Christ. He is the mystery of God revealed. And how is it revealed to us 2,000 years after Jesus died? Revealed to us in the infallible Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. You know how much I love those uh, verses uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, where the Apostle Paul asks that uh, rhetorical question. Remember, what's a rhetorical question? A rhetorical question is a question that contains its own answer in it. You only have to think about it. But in other words, Paul's not wondering. He's asking a rhetorical question to us because he is confident that when he makes the question clear, we'll know what the answer is. What's his rhetorical question? He says, what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? He's stating an obvious fact. In other words, it's a rhetorical question, yeah. It's in the form of a question, but it's actually stating a fact. What man knows the things of a man? What person can know what is really deep down inside another person? Who can know that? The only one who really knows what's inside a person is the person. Nobody can know us unless we reveal ourselves to them. And part of our sinful fallen nature is that we hide that truth. And we try to, we try to look like something we're not. We try to look better, as a matter of fact, than we are. Who knows what is deep inside us? Who can know our deepest thoughts, our hidden desires, the fears that grip us, the treasures that allure us? Who knows them other than our own spirit? And then Paul gives a rhetorical answer to his rhetorical question. Man's very spirit is all that knows what is in a man. A person's spirit is the only thing that can know what's in a man. And how much more with God? infinitely high above us. How could we possibly know what is in God? How could we know the thoughts of God unless His Holy Spirit were to reveal it? Only the Holy Spirit searches the deep things of God. Only the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit knows God perfectly. There is nothing that the Father knows that the Holy Spirit doesn't know. There is nothing that the Father knows that the Son of God doesn't know. That's what John means when he says that the Son is the only one who knows the Father. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, was the only human being who ever walked this earth who knew God, 
who knew everything about God. You see? And we could never know the things of God unless God were to reveal them. And so the apostle in those verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I just love it so much. I think it's one of the most brilliant insights into the nature of the what we call the inspiration of Scripture, the nature of the Bible. What is the Bible? And so the apostle continues, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. He says, even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. The third person of the divine trinity knows all of God's heart. He searches and knows and understands every thought, every every intent, every desire. He is equally omniscient with God. And then the apostle continues into the 12th verse and he says, Now we, that's the apostolic we, we apostles. Actually, he means we apostles and prophets. He's including the prophets in this. It says, now we have received the Spirit. He's, he's saying, the Holy Spirit, who knows everything about God, has been given to us, us apostles, and through the apostles to the church, of course, we get to benefit from it. But directly to the apostles and the prophets. Now we, Paul says, have received the Spirit who is from God. Why? That we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. That we might know the gospel that we might know the mystery of his will, that we might know the way of salvation. That's why the mystery has been revealed to us. And that's what Paul calls in verse 12 here again, if you look at it, that we who are 12 and 13, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. This Holy Spirit message, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is nothing less than the Holy Spirit speaking to mankind. If the Bible is not the word of God, we are lost. We are in the dark. Woe to the church who doesn't believe that this book is Holy Spirit written. Because then we're cut off from God. We have no way. We have to guess. We have to grope around in the dark, you know. The Bible is the Holy Spirit speaking to us things which no eye has seen, which no ear has heard, which could never have entered into the heart of man will of God, the redemption of sinners, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, or sorry, the Apostle Peter has painted a beautiful picture of the same thing that Paul there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. There's always this contrast. I love this contrast between Peter and Paul. You see it, you see it uh, uh, in everything that both of them write, how, how differently they approach things. The Apostle Paul, by God's, 
by God's creation and by God's sanctification and by his inspiration. The Apostle Paul was this gigantic intellect. <laughs> always given us the theology. Always given us the understanding. And Peter, Peter is this fisherman. Okay? But he ha Peter has a gift for describing things, for giving you a, what we call a word picture. He says words and you can picture it and you can understand because of the picture. Well, Peter says the same thing that Paul said theologically in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and hints at it in our verses here today because he's only hinting at it here because he's running through this gigantic list of all of God's blessings. He's only touching on them. We're trying to unpack them a little bit here. Well, Peter, anyway, is talking about the same thing. And remember how Peter says in his second letter, he says, no prophecy ever came about by the will of man. No prophecy ever was, has, its, has its deepest source. in. He's not saying that Isaiah didn't want to write what Isaiah did write. He's not saying that Moses didn't, didn't choose to write what Moses did write. Of course they did. Okay? But, but he's saying the deepest source, the, what you might call the responsibility, the guiding spirit, for what they said and wrote. No prophecy ever came about by the will of man, but holy men of God, men set apart by God, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. When Moses spoke and wrote, the Holy Spirit was guiding him, moving him. Theologians uh, use the word superintended him. Because Peter's picture, it's commonly pointed out that the holy men were moved, is the same word that would be used. It's not always used that way, but it's true. It could be used that way for the wind filling the sails of a boat and moving it along. In the same way, the Holy Spirit filled Moses' sails, Isaiah's sails, and move them along so that they went where God the Holy Spirit guided them. And in that sense, no prophecy ever came about by the mere will of man. It wasn't against the will of those men. I'm just trying, that's a very fine point, wasn't it? Moses didn't say things he didn't want to say. He wanted to say them. Isaiah said the things he wanted to say the way he wanted to say it. And Isaiah is the most classical, beautiful Hebrew in the Bible. And Hosea was every bit as much moved by the Holy Spirit, but he's a hick. And he writes like a hick. He has terrible Hebrew. <laughs> but it's the Word of God. God. God used those people so that what they said... God said, or I should say it, what God said, they said. God, the Holy Spirit, guiding them. So that what they wrote was the very word of God. When you read the Bible, you are reading God's very words. We have to remind ourselves of that. We sort of get a familiarity with the Bible. And, you know, you pick it up and read it as, as if it was Mark Twain or somebody or whoever but it's not. It's God's very words. He says so. 
Okay, and he proved so. He proved it to Moses. He proved it to the people of Israel with the miracles that he worked through Moses and so on and so forth throughout the scriptures. When you read the Bible, you are reading God's very, not just God's word, God's words. His very words, every jot and tittle, Jesus says. It's the same thing that Peter said during his very first sermon on that first Pentecost in Acts chapter 1, verse 16. And Peter uh, said that the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David, and then he quotes one of the Psalms. That is to say, he quotes one of the poems written by David. Okay, But Peter, he could have said, he could, he, he could have said, David said, David spoke, because David did speak. But he's saying something beyond that. Okay? The Holy Spirit spoke. When you read the Psalms of David, those are David's words. That's why, that's why the truly Reformed have always said, you must sing Psalms. Now the Word of God tells you, it tells you in, in Colossians and it tells you in Ephesians, sing psalms. But you shouldn't need the Bible to tell you to sing psalms. Who do you trust more? Some entertainer who's written some, some, some hymns that, that are going to make a million dollars? Or the Holy Spirit who inspired the words? There's something wrong with a church. There's something wrong with a Christian that doesn't want to sing the Psalms. There's something wrong with them. They're the Holy Spirit's words. How could you? Oh, my. Okay. It's exactly the same thing that Paul assured. Some, there was, when, when Paul was in his, what we call his first Roman imprisonment, okay, Paul was imprisoned in Rome twice. Okay? And uh, uh, if you were reading the Acts of the Apostles, the last chapter, the 28th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, leaves off with, Rome, with Paul in, it's a house arrest. He's, he's, he's not literally uh, in a prison room. He's in, under house arrest. But he had, uh, he had a guard. Okay, and they weren't there so much to protect him. They were, they were to protect him from getting away is what they were there for. And Paul says he's in chains. And I suspect he probably means literally the Romans did have a habit of chaining people to soldiers. Okay, some great big hairy old you know, centurion who's going to club you if you try to get away. That's, okay, so Paul was in prison uh, in Rome, okay, and some Jewish people from Rome, because there were Jews living in Rome, came because they had heard about this guy, and he was a famous Jewish rabbi, you know. So they came to talk with him. And it's really interesting. Uh, by the way, uh, that, uh, that scene, that e- event, okay, was written by uh, Paul in that imprisonment, that house arrest, at the same time this epistle was written. That's when this epistle was written. We'll see that as we, as we go through it. That's the same time. 
Okay, so it's, it's very much on Paul's mind. Okay, and Paul says to those uh, Jewish people, probably rabbis who came to visit him, before the Apostle Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 6 to them, this is what the Apostle Paul says to them. The Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah the prophet. So there it is again. The Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah. Peter says, the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David. What the Bible says, jot and tittle, God says. What was true of the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus promised would be equally true of the, of the apostles of the New Testament. He said, it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit of your Father speaks in you. You see how, so, so Jesus is giving his apostles the very same promises that were made concerning the prophets of the Old Testament. If, if the prophets of the Old Testament, if David and, uh, and Isaiah and all the rest of them, okay, spoke, if the Holy Spirit spoke through them, Jesus is saying, and in that same way, you, when you speak, it's going to be the Holy Spirit speaks. That's what he says. It is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaks in you. Matthew 10, verse 20. Okay. What you say, Peter, and Paul wasn't present at that time, of course, he was called later, but still, what you say, Paul, God the Holy Spirit says. That's how we know that the Bible is infallible. It's without error. Why? Because God won't lie and he can't make a mistake. And so it must be true. It has to be true. There's just no chance that it's not true. And that's why Christians bow to the absolute authority of the Bible's commandments. If the Bible tells us to do something, God's telling us to do something. If we disobey the Bible, we disobey God. Okay? And that's why we trust its promises. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. When the Bible tells me, the Holy Spirit tells me. Secondly, I want you to notice that the Holy Spirit is not only the great inspirer of Scripture, but he is the great quickener that which made the old word quick or wick, they, they still say in Yorkshire, wick means alive, quick. Quickened means alive, okay? He is the great quickener of hearts. Once again, look at verses 12 and 13 and try to, try to grasp now, you know, think about what the apostle is saying here. That we, okay, there's, the, there, there's a we and then there's you, 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 and then there's we again, you'll see that. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of 
promise. You see, see that. Look at the verse thirteen again, just really carefully. In Him you trusted. You had faith. Okay. In whom? In Him you also trusted. When? After you heard the word of truth. You didn't trust before you heard the word of truth because you didn't know what to believe. You didn't know what to trust. You have to hear the word first. You have to hear the gospel before you can believe in Christ because you don't know who Christ is. You don't even know there is a Christ. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. After you heard. The apostle's getting very personal here. He's talking to the people in the church which the apostle Paul personally had founded. You can read about that in the book of Acts. Okay. But he's getting very personal. After you, you Ephesians, you guys. He's saying, remember this. I came and I preached the gospel to you. Remember that? Remember that? Okay. And my, what a time they had in Ephesus Remember, what was his name? Demetrius, the silversmith? And, and all the business about, the, about Diana and on the riot in that city. What an uproar. The, the point is, the Ephesians knew very well. Paul preached the truth. And a few people listened. And most people didn't. Most people were infuriated by what Paul had to say. When the apostle preached to the Ephesians, they heard. They listened to, you might translate it. They listened to the word of truth. It was spoken. It was spoken to them in their presence verbally by Paul. And it's still being spoken to them in this epistle, which the apostle Paul has written to them and which they are now reading just like we're reading it. This is objectively the Holy Spirit speaking. And it is sufficient. The theologians say the scriptures are sufficient. That's important that we know that. They are sufficient. They're sufficient in that they are without error. They don't need any correction. They carry the authority of God himself, the Holy Spirit speaking. They tell us everything which is necessary to know about God in order to be saved. They don't tell us everything about God. John tells us, you know, the the world wouldn't be big enough to hold all the books. The Bible doesn't tell us everything about God. But it tells us everything we need to know about God. It is sufficient Everything we need to know about God, everything we need to do to please God, and everything we need to believe in order to be saved. The scripture is sufficient. But, be careful. The scriptures are not sufficient for everything. Well, I've already pointed out they're not sufficient for knowing everything about God. Okay. But there's something far more practical 
And it explains why when Paul went to Ephesus, some few believed and the rest had a riot. Were furious. Why? The scriptures are not sufficient for this. The Ephesians notice the sad reality and so have you. You notice it practically every day of your life. Most persons who hear the Bible, who hear the gospel, or who hear the law of God, simply will not accept it. Even the Holy Scriptures cannot convert a heart. And that's why Paul In this 13th verse, see, in him, Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. Now, the rest of them didn't. Okay, those guys heard the word of truth too, but they were furious. After you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It is this sovereign, personal activity of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit inspired this revelation, this book. Okay? What this book says, God says. But nobody will hear it unless the Holy Spirit seals it to them. Okay. Unless the Holy Spirit changes their hearts. That's what that verse, our memory verse for this month from Ezekiel. This is a topic that really burned in Ezekiel's heart from the beginning to the end of this letter. Ezekiel, I would be willing to say... Ezekiel is the prophet of the Holy Spirit. He's the prophet of the Holy Spirit. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will take away the heart, stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. Who says the Trinity is not in the Old Testament? Only the people who don't read the Old Testament. Well, the word Trinity is not there, and it's not in the New Testament. But you only got to read, okay? Here's two of them right here. And I will put my spirit. God is at least two persons. Okay? And cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Okay? Even the The pure word of God, written down or preached, is not enough to convert a heart, to quicken, to regenerate a heart. God, the Holy Spirit, must do that. And that's why, if you have any sense at all, you don't try to do evangelism. Unless you have prayed mightily. Because you're only heeding the coals of hell unless the Holy Spirit regenerates that person. Do you understand that? 
they're going to be punished for all eternity, not only for their other sins, but for rejecting the gospel that you preach to them. Now, you're required to preach it anyway. God knows what he's doing. But you must be aware okay, that God the Holy Spirit is the only one. Paul went to Ephesus. He's reminding them of his personal experience there. He preached the pure word of God and some believed and were saved. They trusted in Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit. And the others were enraged against Paul and against the truth of what Paul, uh, what Paul proclaimed. Okay. Jesus talks about this several times. He talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about it in the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, the great parable chapter, the great gospel of the, the great uh, kingdom of God chapter. The kingdom of God is like a sower who goes out to sow the seed. He throws it. He speaks the word of God wherever. And some of it falls by the wayside. And the birds come. The spiritual birds are the devil. The birds come and they take it away. The person didn't even listen. They never even listened. The trouble is not in the seed. The trouble is not in the word of God purely, accurately preached. The trouble is in the listeners. They have stony hearts. As I said, the ancient prophet Ezekiel agonized over that reality. Let's go there for a minute. Let's let's go to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33. If you open your Bible in the middle, you'll get to somewhere around Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, maybe, maybe as far as Isaiah. Isaiah's the first of the four long prophets. We call them the major prophets, not because they spoke more purely the word of God, but because they're longer books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. But Jeremiah has two books, Jeremiah and Lamentations. So there you go. Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33. Let's look at this from the beginning with verse 20. God actually comes and talks with Ezekiel because this is... He's the prophet of the Holy Spirit. He really is. And he's really agonizing over this. He's pouring out his heart. He's preaching. And nothing's happening. Okay. As for God speaks to Ezekiel, as for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you. Beside the walls and in the doors of their houses, they speak to one another. Everyone's saying to his brother, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. Oh man, they're enthusiastic. They must be saved people. So they come to you, as people do. They sit before you, as my people. And they hear your words but they do not do them. 
For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. They're not the seed which falls on the wayside and nothing ever happens. They, they, they walk in the door and then they walk out and they have no idea what was even discussed and they really don't care. But these are the seeds that fall on the stony ground, the shallow ground. And they receive it with joy, Jesus says. They are enthusiastic. Now, if you're enthusiastic about the Bible, you've got to be saved, right? You must be. Okay. With their mouth, they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you, Ezekiel, are to them as a very lovely song. They know a good preacher when they hear it. You are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. They even love the hymns. For they hear your words, but do not do them. When this comes to pass, this judgment, surely it will come, God says to Ezekiel, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Preaching the word of God is a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. If the Holy Spirit goes with that preaching and enters that person's heart, quickening them, making them alive to the word of God so that they not only intellectually approve of it, but they love the word of God. They trust the word of God. They humble themselves before the word of God. They believe. They are regenerate, you see. But apart from that, as Jonathan Edwards so famously said, it don't seem real to them. It don't seem real to them. Most of the people in, the, in larger churches, for sure, it don't seem real to them. Jesus diagnosed the problem. This is the condemnation. Light has come into the world. Every time the Bible is read, every time, every time a faithful sermon is preached, light has come into the world. But the world loves darkness. The world loves darkness. And without the quickening and illumining power of the Holy Spirit, the natural man. By the natural man, I mean the unregenerate man. Man the way he's born. Okay? born dead. That's what the whole second chapter is going to be about. The natural man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.19. Always. He suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. If he loves and accepts and is changed by the truth, he's not, he's not natural man. He is regenerate. But the natural man cannot hear the word of truth. Well, then how could God hold him responsible? Because the reason he cannot hear the truth is because he does not want to hear the truth. 
You can convince a jury about what is true, and if, if they want to practice jury nullification, they'll do so. Just deny the truth. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The more brightly, the more clearly Jesus is saying the light of Scripture is set before the hardened heart, the more that heart is hardened. It, is, it grows more and more calloused against the Word of God. And that's why evangelism is a dangerous business. But notice the good news for believers. Verse 13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The gospel was preached, Paul says, and the Ephesians heard they trusted in Christ Why? Because they were given new hearts by the Holy Spirit of promise. They were given a gift of saving faith. Paul's going to discuss that once again more in the second chapter of Ephesians. What happened? What was different between the Ephesians who believed and the Ephesians who rioted against the gospel? Well, for those who believed, their deaf ears, they were just as deaf just as deaf as the other pagans, you know. Their deaf ears were opened, their blind eyes were enlightened, their hearts no longer hard, rocky, dead ground where no seed could take root, or if it did, it sprung up only for a moment. But for these people, it was like, again, Ezekiel's army of dead bones. Dead Try. Can these bones live, Ezekiel? And Ezekiel wants to say no, but he knows he's dealing with God. You figure you better not say no. So he says, Thou knowest, O Lord. <laughs> Thou knowest. Okay. And God says to Ezekiel, Prophesy. And they still don't come to life. And then the Ruach, the wind, The Spirit of God begins to blow and those bones become an army, a great army of living, breathing, spiritually alive people. Ha'il gadol ma'od ma'od. An army, big, very, very, is what he says literally. An army, big, very. They heard the gospel of the word of God. They believed the gospel. They trusted in him because it is a part of the word of God. They trusted Christ because the gospel proclaims him to be the one and only redeemer. We believe Christ because the Bible says believe him. Okay. The apostle doesn't usually, well, he, he, he never says invite Jesus into your hearts. He says, obey the gospel. (laughs) Obey the gospel. God doesn't negotiate. Obey the gospel. All this because the Holy Spirit has quickened them, given them new life, like that great wind of Ezekiel. 
Ezekiel's valley of dry bones, that wind freely blowing wherever it, wherever it wills, wherever it desires, as Jesus tells it in Nicodemus. Okay? That, that Holy Spirit entered and they were born not of the will of the flesh, but of God. What did you do that you were born the first time? Nothing. And what, if you are born again, what did you do? Nothing. And it steals from the, from the Holy Spirit's glory to say that we did something first. Dead men don't do anything. You have faith and then you're born again. You have faith and then you have a miracle. Oh yeah, just like Lazarus in the grave. Yeah, he, he had faith. And then he got raised from the dead. Did you read the story? <laughs> dead men don't have faith. And spiritually dead men don't have faith. If you have faith, it's because God has already regenerated you, given you new life. God has given the Ephesian believers new hearts of flesh, made them new creatures, caused them to be born again. And then, even then, the great work of the Holy Spirit was not completed. There's something more. The Holy Spirit is not only the great inspirer of Scripture, the great quickener of hearts, but the Holy Spirit is the great sanctifier of the saints. Once again, verses uh, 13 and 14. I'm going to begin, uh, I'll, I'll read the whole verse 13, but, but, uh, and I'll tell you in the middle where I want you to start especially noticing. In Christ you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now here it is now. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until, there's this in-between time, until the redemption of the final uh, redemption, you might say, the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of, of his glory. God is not a quitter. God is not a quitter. He always completes the work which he has begun. We memorized it, didn't we? So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, empty, but shall accomplish that which I please, Isaiah 55, 11. The Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, another letter written, I don't even know which was written first, Ephesians or, or Philippians, because they're, they're, like, they're really close together. I don't, I don't know. They're written surely within a two-year period, I'll bet you within a one-year period of, of time from house arrest in Rome. Okay, But Paul wrote to the Philippians, He says, I am confident of this very thing. I am confident of this, that he who has begun, I might add, he who has actually begun, not whom you may be presuming began, 
He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, 6. That's what he's saying here, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the, per- of the purchased possession. That's the day of Jesus Christ, the redemption of the purchase. Paul says to the Philippians, I am confident of this. If if you have been elect by God, if you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, if you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, regenerated, given faith, then God will bring it to completion. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. That's the way it is with the work of redemption. The redemption which the Father has predestined and planned. The redemption which the Son has accomplished through his own blood. That same redemption planned in eternity, accomplished on on Calvary, will be applied to all God's elect, all God's beloved in the life of every believer. Those who were dead in Adam and are alive in Christ will more and more have the image of their sinful earthly father, Adam, removed. And the image of God in Jesus Christ applied to them. That's what Paul means when he says the Holy Spirit seals. The Holy Spirit guarantees that work. God is not a quitter. He brings it to conclusion. The great work of sanctification. See, in sanctification, by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the saint actually undergoes a gradual, lifelong transformation. Paul will say later in this epistle, the whole second half of this epistle is devoted to sanctification, the whole second half, okay? This lifelong transformation, putting off the old man, putting on the new man. That's this process, lifelong, of sanctification in the life of everyone who is actually born again. That's really how you tell whether you're born again. By this we know that we know him, John says, 1 John By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. If we keep God's commandments from our heart, including the great commandment to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength, and the second which is like it, to love thy neighbor as myself. Do you love him the way you ought to? R.C. always asks that question first. Do you love, well, I guess he asks it second. Do you love God? You want to know if you're a Christian? Do you love God? Yes. You love him the way you ought to. He's waiting for the wrong answer, which is yes. The right answer is no. It's pitiful. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. I don't even want to talk about it, R.C. If you knew, R.C. That's sanctification. It's a bloody battle. It's a bloody battle. 
the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. So we don't do the things that we want to do. The good that we desire, we don't do. The evil that we hate, that we do. It's a bloody battle. Better be ready. Be a wise king. Count the cost. Don't, don't become a Christian. If you don't count the cost, it's going to cost you your hand. It's going to cost you your arm. It's going to cost you your, your eye. It's going to cost you all kinds of things in your life that cause you to sin. And you have to get rid of them. It hurts. Sanctification is a bloody battle. It is not a rose garden. It just isn't. Okay. In sanctification, the saint becomes the saint. He becomes the holy person whom God has proclaimed him to be in justification. That's the difference. The saint becomes what God in his justification, which happens okay, in the blink of an eye. God justifies the sinner, but justification doesn't change a person. Justification is just recognizing Jesus Christ in their place and therefore accepting them and adopting them and loving them. Okay. See, so that's, this is the difference between sanctification and justification. What do you do in Justification. This is the great heresy. This is why the Roman Catholic Church to this day is not a Christian church. They claim that we are justified by our good works, which they say, quote, merit further justification, whatever that means. They merit further justification, and finally they merit heaven. And that's in 1547 when the Roman Catholic Church became a synagogue of Satan. They killed the gospel. They killed it. And they still. Well, now they're wandering all over the globe with every, every strange wind of modern doctrine. But, that, but they never came back to the gospel. And that's what Luther and the, and the other reformers were clinging to and they were willing to die for. God justifies. It's not something we do or have anything to do with. God single-handedly justifies us for Jesus' sake. But sanctification, okay, so in, in justification, the error is Roman Catholicism. You participate in it when you don't. In sanctification, okay, antinomianism, and what they call pietism or do-nothingism, okay? Just let go, let God. That's the opposite heresy. That one says that in sanctification, just like in justification, what do you do? Well, nothing, just let God do it. You've noticed how that works. Even if you don't get up and go to church when you could, God still makes you holier that day, doesn't he? On that. It doesn't happen. Okay. What is sanctification? The Bible assures us that, number one, sanctification, this, this, this activity of the Holy Spirit, okay, alongside of whom 
we work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Okay. That sanctification is God's will for your life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, please memorize it. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Whether you should do something. Well, will it make me feel better? Will it make me look better? Will it please other people? Will it make me more secure? All of those are an incredibly distant second. The question is, is this the will of God? Well, the will of God is your sanctification. Not your wealth, not your security, not your reputation, not feeling good about yourself. This is God's will for your life. Sanctification. And though that sanctification now in no way earns your merits. It doesn't earn or merit justification, which is already done. It doesn't earn or merit salvation. But it is the instrument. It's the means by which we are brought home. Okay. If you don't obey the commandments of God, the Holy Spirit won't do it for you. If you tell a lie... You've noticed he doesn't, he doesn't come along and take charge of your lips and make you tell the truth. When you're being lazy, he doesn't move in and make you get up and do it. Well, you want to lay there, you lay, lie there, you'll lie there. Okay? Those sanctification by no means earns, merits, justification, yet... The writer of Hebrews, chapter 12 and verse 14, if it were to be translated literally, you often wonder, why, why don't they translate that literally? I hope it's because they don't want it to be clear. But sometimes you've got to wonder about it. Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue sanctification, except for they translated holiness. But holiness is not the same as sanctification. Holiness is a state. Sanctification is a process. You can see that. Sanctification, it's a doing of something. Holiness, terrible translation. Pursue sanctification. And that's the word that the, that the writer of Hebrews uses. Pursue it. Pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. No one goes to heaven who hasn't worked out his salvation in fear and trembling, in blood, sweat, and tears. No one. It's really true. Okay. Without which no one. Let go, let God. If you let go, God never had you. He never had you. Ever. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul speaks very bluntly about those whose lives do not exhibit sanctification. Those who profess Christ and yet don't do it. They don't obey the word of God by believing or by obeying. 
And he begins with one of his, uh, I like to make famous anyway, because he has several of them, blood-curdling lists and a stark warning. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. He says to, to those who profess Christ now, he's not talking to the pagans. He's talking to the Christians. Do not be deceived. Why does he say that? Because we're prone to be deceived. We're prone to deceive ourselves. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, people who put anything before God, nor adulterers, not just physically, but in the heart, nor homosexuals, Unlike the nonsense going on in the PCA, this idea that, well, I can be a gay Christian. No, you can't. You must hate sin. And that means a desire for it. To desire to commit adultery is the sin of adultery if you've never touched her. To desire to hurt somebody, to kill them, is the sin of murder even if you never touch them. And to desire a homosexual relationship or activity is already the same. I can't imagine why this is an issue in the PCA. I just cannot imagine. Well, anyway, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous. Covetous? That means, what's the sin of covetousness? It's being unhappy because you don't have something. That's what covetousness is. That's what coveting is. Coveting, okay. In other words, it's not a sin to desire to live in a better house, for example, within all things being equal. Okay? It's not, it's, but it's not a sin to de- desire to have a better house. But it's a sin to be unhappy when God doesn't let you have a better house. That's the sin of covetousness. Paul really struggled with that sin because he mentions it about himself all the time, that he was, that he was a, a covetous person. Well, anyway, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, none of those, quote, will inherit the kingdom of God. No matter what your theology says, I believed Lord, Lord, didn't I believe? I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. You people who did not fight the battle against the flesh. No one goes to heaven with their favorite sin tucked in their back pocket. No one. Every sin. Every sin. And then the apostle continues with glorious gospel truth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were. Notice the past tense. They're no longer adulterers, homosexuals, liars, thieves. They're no longer. Such were some of you. So what do you learn? There is no sin too great to be forgiven. There is no sin 
too great to be forgiven. There is no sin too small to be condemned. There is no sin too small to be tolerated in your life. And so Paul continues with the work of the Holy Spirit in redemption in our verses in in, uh, Ephesians. And he says, uh, oh, I'm sorry, no, I'm still back in the uh, first Corinthians chapter six. He continues and he says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. But you were justified. No, it's not, a, it, it, it's not a chronological order. The reason that you were sanctified is because you were justified. Okay? He doesn't say the reason that you were justified is because you were sanctified. That's the Roman Catholic error again. Okay? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The great work of the Holy Spirit is the sanctification of the saints. In justification, that great once for all single-handed judgment of God in which he accepts the sinner, proclaims him legally just or righteous purely for Christ's sake, solo Christo, only for Christ's sake. And sanctification... That great justification, by the way, the work of God the Father, and sanctification, the work of God the Holy Spirit, that great lifelong, life-changing work of the Spirit who indwells every believer, enabling the saint to work out his salvation with fear and trembling, not lackadaisical, but with fear and trembling. He's looking at his life. He's not ignoring that those those that hundred sins that he committed that day, that the world would say, "You're th- you're worried about that." Yeah, he's worried about that. Okay. And he knows, if we're faithful to confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins. No sin he won't forgive us if we don't if we will confess it. There is no sin like that. Okay. That work of sanctification, the Holy Spirit enabling the saint to work out his salvation, to walk in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Notice how it's even in the 23rd Psalm. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. Sanctification. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness to do, to keep the commandments of God. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness so that I'll be accepted. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This stuff is all over the Old Testament too. You just have to have the, have, have the ears and the eyes to, uh, to see it there. The great work of redemption will be applied to every saint, sealed by the Holy Spirit, brought to perfect completion on that great day. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption, meaning the final redemption, you know, redeem something, you turn it in. We get turned into heaven, so to speak, until the redemption of the purchased possession 
to the praise of his glory. And on that day, redemption, Paul was saying, will be signed, sealed, and delivered. Okay. And it'll be to the praise of God's glory. Let's pray. Oh, dear Holy Spirit of God. Oh, how we thank you that you would be pleased to come and dwell in ones like us according to the eternal plan of the Father, according to the shed blood of Christ for us, that even as we have so much corruption left in our lives, in our words, in our deeds, and especially in our thoughts, how we thank you that you who are perfectly holy are pleased to make your home with us. Oh, how we pray, dear Holy Spirit, that you would continue this great work, that you would give us the grace, the strength, the perseverance, the patience, the hope, the courage to work out our salvation along with you for the glory and the praise of the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.